Hey everyone, welcome to the Happy Flosser podcast. My name is Billy Lunt. I am your host, and I am here to talk to you about all things dental hygiene to support you on your journey through the dental hygiene program. Welcome, so glad to have you. Are you looking for study sheets? I've created study sheets that cover the content of this episode. If you're interested or that's something that's going to help you on your learning journey, you can click the link listed right in the description of these show notes. Happy studying. Hey everyone. We are talking about community water fluoridation in this episode. So what is community water fluoridation? It is an adjustment of the fluoride levels found in any public water supply in order to bring the fluoride levels to what is considered an optimal level for the purpose of caries prevention in any population that uses water. There's lots of benefits to patients all across the age spectrum. It's considered an ideal public health measure because it benefits all members within the community. It's socially equitable. It's very easy to access. There's continual protection with absolutely no compliance. It's very cost-effective and easy to use. And there's no dosage schedules for your patients to remember. So kudos for healthcare professionals, right? No painful usages of fluoride. So community water fluoridation is a public health success. It's important for you as a healthcare provider to understand the history of community water fluoridation and to provide current and accurate evidence to support the efforts in expanding the use of community water fluoridation in the communities that we live. As a professional, you should know the history, the effectiveness of it, the mechanisms of action, the safety, the cost of it, and some of the basic engineering aspects of community water fluoridation. We have more than 70 years of research backing us up in support of community water fluoridation. But there are still some Americans who believe otherwise and are opponents to this. So it is our duty to support the efforts of community water fluoridation. So I'm going to give you some of that information in this podcast episode today. There are three main mechanisms of action for community water fluoridation. The first is the topical interaction with the enamel. That's the remineralization process, which occurs with more acid-resistant appetite crystals form and are incorporated to the enamel matrix. The conversion of hydroxyapatite into calcium fluoroapatite is huge in the reduction of caries rates. This reduces the solubility of tooth enamel in acid, and it makes it more resistant to tooth decay. And so this is one of the main mechanisms of action for community water. The second mechanism of action is the interaction with the bacteria. Fluoride inhibits glycolysis and dextran formation in order to allow for dental biofilm adherence, and it has a direct effect on the bacteria. Now remember, glycolysis is the breakdown of glucose by enzymes, releasing energy and pyruvic acid. Now the third mechanism of action is the developmental interaction with enamel. Remember the reduction in enamel solubility. 
It's important to understand the mechanism of action in order to be able to educate and advocate for community water fluoridation in order for it to be supported, to prosper, and even better, to thrive in our communities. So just like anything else that you strongly support, it's important for you to have a historical perspective. Now, the clinical discovery phase of community water fluoridation began in the era of 1901 to 1933. Now, Dr. McKay was the first dentist to study fluoride, and he was in pursuit of knowledge. What was causing the modeling of the teeth in the long-term residents of Colorado? This was a question that he pursued to answer. And in doing so, he noticed that there was a connection between deep artesian wells and lower caries rates. He was able to demonstrate a geographic link. Several states were studied, and the fluoride that was naturally occurring ended up being embedded in the enamel. So the hypothesis was individuals with fluorosis had less decay, and it was related to something in the drinking water or diet. Now, Dr. McKay collaborated with G.V. Black, H.T. Dean, and H.V. Churchill. H.V. Churchill was a chemist he identified fluoride by spectrophotometry to analyze and identify the levels of fluoride contained in the drinking water. A new method created in the 1930s identified up to 14 parts per million in Colorado. An important point is that he developed the critical analytic method used to detect measurable quantities of fluoride in the water. This was a big step. H.T. Dean was the head of the National Institute of Health, and he was the first to investigate the epidemiology of fluorosis in the 1930s. He was also associated with the USPHS, the United States Public Health System, which is a branch under DHHS. Now, what is epidemiology? Epidemiology is the study of health in populations in order to understand the causes and patterns of health and illness. The epidemiological phase occurred from about 1933 to 1945, and this is when dental caries became a matter of national concern. Now, Dr. Dean was the leader of extensive research in order to establish the one part per million standard for community water fluoridation. He was able to demonstrate the relationship among modeled enamel, water fluoridation concentrations, and dental caries rates. He renamed dental fluorosis and developed the Dean's Dental Index of Fluorosis. Dean went on to do a 21-city study where he compared fluorosis and decay rates. He identified caries rates as being lower in the cities with increased fluoride in the community water supplies at concentrations of greater than one part per million. This seems almost obvious at this point, but you have to remember that this was in the 1930s and 40s, and we just didn't have any understanding, so this was all being discovered and developed. Dean's research discovered areas with excessive fluoride, some fluoride, and no fluoride, and he scored fluorosis levels and DMFT scores, decayed missing filled teeth, and collected water samples in his research. His investigation showed a direct link that the higher concentrations of fluoride in natural water correlated directly with the fewer teeth that contained caries. 
He also showed a direct link that the increased levels of fluoride were associated with increased prevalence of fluorosis. So we move on to the demonstration phase, which occurred between 1945 and 1954. At this point, Dean had collected a lot of research. He had investigated a lot of different populations, and he could correlate the data to have some demonstrations. His community research trials, where he took four paired cities and he did a study using what he already learned from the 21 city study, he took four different populations and divided them up. He used the DMFT scores, water samples, and the Dean's index of fluorosis. He correlated that there was a difference in oral health and fluorosis among the four cities with different concentrations of fluoride in the water. His results demonstrated the hypothesis. If there's an increase in the fluoride in the water, there's a decrease in the caries rates. Dean's four-pair city study showed that lower levels or no fluoride areas had increased DMFT scores and that cities that hovered around one part per million had lower DMFT scores and very little or no fluorosis present. So his experimental group was a one part per million fluoride group, and this included four different cities. His control group had four different cities that had no fluoride or fluoride that was below 0.7 parts per million. And his goal was to find the lowest amount of fluoride that was needed in order to inhibit caries and at the same time prevent dental fluorosis. Now in January 1945, Grand Rapids, Michigan was the first city in the world to adjust fluoride levels in the water in order to impact dental health and decrease tooth decay. Now keep in mind, Dean's four-pair city study was a randomized control study and cross-sectional surveys were used. The conclusion of Dean's 15-year clinical trials were this. Fluoride provides benefit regardless of your socioeconomic status. It was proven to be safe and cost-effective for populations. It was considered a passive vehicle to the individuals and the community. The research concluded that fewer caries and lower fluorosis risk were found at levels of one part per million. And this became the benchmark for the USPHS and for the EPA. The optimal range was established at 0.7 parts per million to 1.2 parts per million, depending on the climate. And this has been changed, but was the result of the study at the time. Now it's 0.7 parts per million, no matter what the climate is. The clinical trials concluded that 50 to 70% of caries reduction were found in the cities that contained community water fluoridation. Holy cow! <laughs> the last phase of the community water fluoridation historical perspective is phase four, the technology transfer phase. And this has kind of a timeline benchmark from the mid-1950s to today. In the 1950s, the U.S. Public Health Service issued a policy statement to the ADA in support of community water fluoridation. The ADA supported, recommended, and encouraged community water fluoridation as a result of Dean's studies. In 1951, community water fluoridation became a supported official policy of public health service before the U.S. Senate. In 1955, 
the ADA endorsed the first fluoridated toothpaste. Wow, isn't that huge? The U.S. Surgeon General advocated and still does advocate for community water fluoridation. And at that time, in 1955, implementation of community water fluoridation began across the United States. Now, from 1967 to 1992, DMFT scores among 12-year-olds in the United States has steadily declined as a result of community water fluoridation. As decay rates are reduced, tooth loss and periodontal problems related to decay are also reduced. There's fewer abscesses and toothaches that keep people from going to school or work because oral pain is a strong contributor to absence. Now, the Healthy People 2010 initiatives were established as a set of national health goals in 2010. Now, Healthy People 2010 had the goal that 74.6% of the U.S. population had service of community water systems should have community water fluoridation. The Healthy People Goal 2020 was 79.6% of the population on community water systems should have fluoridated water. The most recent data shows that 72.8% of people that were served by community water systems in the United States with optimally fluoridated water, 72.8% of the United States population. Our target is 77.1, according to the Water Fluoridation Reporting System. More research has been initiated in order to fight anti-fluoride campaigns that continue. No credible evidence supports any association between fluoridation and any potential adverse health effects or systemic disorders at optimal levels approved by the ADA. Only toxic in excessive amounts. Fluoride has been found to be toxic in very excessive amounts. I want you to know that even in our little state of New Hampshire, every year something comes across as a bill to ban fluoride in community water systems. And at the same time, many of the towns and municipalities in our state have received awards of distinction for optimal levels of fluoride and, con and controls in our state. So you have both sides. So it's really important as a healthcare provider that you understand the historical perspective because you never know when you might need to be an advocate in support of community water fluoridation in your state. Some of the basic facts of community water fluoridation. And sometimes when you just stick to the facts, it really helps you advocate for what is. Fluoride is naturally occurring in nature, right? It's a nutrient, just like iron, iodine. It is safe when it is delivered at the optimal dose. Frequent or daily ingestion is best. It's best if it can be incorporated into foods or drinks that we consume. And there's topical benefit for use of fluoride at all ages. Exposure of daily fluoride for all ages is proven to be beneficial. Now, the mechanism of action for fluoride, the primary effect is topical. It has a higher impact in the post-eruptive phase. It's excreted by saliva, allowing for continual contact with the teeth. Fluoride promotes remineralization, it inhibits glycolysis, it inhibits demineralization, and it decreases the risk of caries on both crowns and roots of teeth. This is the primary effect. The secondary effect of fluoride is systemic. We know that systemic fluoride helps in the development of the teeth pre-eruptive. It's 
replacement of hydroxyapatite with fluoroapatite during the enamel matrix formation in the tooth development process. Now, the long-term goal of community water fluoridation is to maximize caries prevention with minimal risk of fluorosis using optimal fluoride levels. And sometimes when you're educating a group of people or an individual or you're advocating for community water fluoridation, the best thing to do is to stick to the facts. Rely on what you know from your historical knowledge and stick with the facts as you support community water fluoridation. I would invite you to send me any questions that you need answered. Questions come up when you listen to this podcast. I have a link in the show notes and I'd be happy to answer any questions that you have. Also, I would appreciate a review if you have time to leave one. Thank you so much.